This is episode number 159 of Patrick Jones Baseball. On this episode, we have Monty Lee, who is the head baseball coach at Clemson University. Um, his entire life, Monty wanted to do one thing, and that was coach. Even back in as a young high school teenager, his dream was to one day become the head baseball coach at his high school. His journey has taken him to several stops, all in the great state of South Carolina. He's now in his fifth year as the head baseball coach at Clemson University. And in this episode, Monty shares what he's learned along the way, how he became a better recruiter, what it takes to build a good culture, implementing technology into a program, plate discipline, and even the mental game. Um, This was an incredible conversation that I had. I know I took tons of notes even uh, while I was recording this live. Um, If you want to do the same out there listening, please make sure to just share those notes on social media for everyone else out there as well. So the only thing that I do ask is if you do enjoy the podcast, please do share it on social media. Leave us a review on iTunes or just text this episode to a fellow friend who you think would enjoy it. Um, The goal of the podcast is to continue to grow and and help as many coaches, players, parents, and just fans. Um, So again, really would appreciate if you would do that. And without further ado, here is Monty Lee. All right, we are now live with Monty Lee, who's the head baseball coach at Clemson University. Uh, Monty, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. So it's been a it's been a crazy last few days here, um, you know, with baseball essentially from every level being suspended. Um, you know, players are having to go home. How have you been? How have you been able to uh, kind of keep your guys and their spirits still up and and give them hope to play baseball at some point? Well, it's been a, it's been a very challenging time, I think, for all of us across the board uh, between college baseball high school baseball, professional baseball, just, you know, literally just the sudden stop in everything and and just the speed in which this has all happened. Uh, Just to kind of, you know, go back a few days for us, uh, literally uh, last Thursday, um, our team was in the weight room, uh, training in the weight room at 1130. And we were, we had a one o'clock departure uh, to go to Wake Forest uh, for a weekend series and by 12 o'clock, we had been notified that the ACC basketball tournament had canceled, and we were as far as our trip to Wake Forest. Now, bear in mind, we had played on Wednesday, literally the night before. We had played an 11-inning game, one in extra innings. And, uh, you know, by 2 o'clock on Thursday, uh, we're on our season is on hold. Uh, we met with our guys, told our guys to hold tight, that it looks like we're going to be suspended for a couple weeks, um, uh, and that we were going to put together some individualized plans over the next few days uh, until we know more. Well, by 4.15, and so I met with our team you know, roughly at about 3 o'clock and told them that the, that the season was going to be suspended. And by 4.15, we saw on social media where – uh, the College World Series had been canceled. And literally, it happened that fast. From from 12 o'clock, we're in the weight room, uh, leaving at 1 o'clock. Um, the ACC had put out a statement that all con- all competitions were suspended uh, for the time being. And by 4 o'clock, the College World Series is being sus- it, it had been canceled. Jeez. So this thing moved so fast and was so rapid 
that I don't I don't know if any of us were prepared for it in terms of how to communicate this to our players. But uh, we we regrouped the following day and told our guys, um, you know that that it looks like our season was was suspended for quite some time and that they needed to go home. This week was spring break, so our guys are are all at home. They're, they'll they'll go into e learning uh, once school starts back next week. <clears throat> but right now, our guys are are really uh, on their own, and and we are in the process this week as a staff between my strength coach, myself, our coaching staff, of trying to put together individual plans for the guys while they're at home. Uh, but the the biggest challenge that we're running into right now, and our and and obviously our student athletes' health is is our priority. That's our biggest priority right now. Is we're trying to educate our guys with our group messaging on on uh, the coronavirus and, and and measures that they need to be taking to keep themselves safe, but also how can they train on their own in the meantime until we know you know, what does this look like in terms of when will we be able to play baseball again? Will we, will our guys be able to go play summer baseball? Um, and if not between now and, and whenever we can begin baseball activity again, what can they be doing to keep themselves in shape, which is a, which is a big challenge because cages are shut down. Eating facilities are shut down. Um, weight rooms are shut down. So, um, it's literally as bare bones right now as 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 we can make visualized uh, at home body weight training, uh, you know, a tee and a bat. Uh, you know, our guys have weighted bats that that we give them. Uh, so you know, we're going to make we're we'll try to get as creative as we can to keep them as strong as we can in the meantime. But right now, you know, their their safety, their health is the main priority, and their and their academics are their main priority. They have to make sure they stay on top of their academic workload uh, via virtual learning, you know, through our university uh, for the time being. So uh, it's very challenging times right now. Yeah, I mean that that definitely it definitely does sound like a pretty big challenge. Uh, I mean, I, I'm just thinking of some of the some of the a lot of other players who have reached out and you might have to you know like I tell them get a little old school and it might be a lot of just practice yep. dry swings and you know yep I mean hey I mean you just you got to make do with what you got that's exactly right and 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 that's what we're doing I mean and and we have our guys are are very very familiar with literally taking old aluminum bats and and rolling the end of the bat with a piece of tape to inload it uh, that's how we train our guys in a weighted bat program that we use over winter break and in our pre-fall uh, period of time. Uh, we, we do an overload-underload program to build bat speed and strength and adaptability in the swing. And, you know, that's what our guys are really going to have to do now is is literally if you can find a tee, you know, a cage at your high school and you can hit on your own, you know, implement that weighted bat program and, and, and a body weight program, we have to assume that our guys will not have a weight room to train in mm-hmm. uh, just because of the, uh, you know, our, some of our, you know, we, we have guys from all over the place and they may not have access to a weight room. So uh, our strength coach who's one of the best there is. Rick Francois has actually putting, is actually putting together, you know, a body weight program for our guys that they can do at home to try to maintain their strength and their fitness level. And, and we'll put together a, a weighted bat program for our guys and a throwing program for our guys. And, you know, hopefully uh, that'll keep our guys fair with, you know, their academic work for the time being until we know more. And, and, and that's, that's the thing about this is, 
you know, we, we don't know what this is going to look like for the foreseeable future. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're learning as we go. Are you even allowed to go into your office or do you have to work from home? I cannot. Yeah, we're, we're actually, we're on shutdown, uh, as well. Uh, we, uh, as of right now, uh, we cannot go to the office, uh, until April the 5th. Uh, they are allowing us to go individually in to get anything as far as bare necessities that we may need computer, you know, uh, you know, documents, things that we can work, uh, from, uh, work with at home. But we are actually shut down until April the 5th as of right now. Uh, so I'm going to be home for the next three weeks um, and uh, literally just kind of working from home. But we can't go into our facility. We can't go into our cage. Uh, no, nobody uh, can go into our facilities uh, between you know now and April the 5th until further notice. So it's an adjustment for us, you know, too, as coaches is, you know, a lot of time at home. Uh, a lot of at home, a lot of long walks with the dogs, and uh, you know, just really, really, just trying to communicate with with our guys individually, you know, over this time, just to see how they're doing, and just make sure that you know if we can help them with anything, um, you know, during this time period that we do so. Yeah, that's that. That definitely sounds pretty tough. And um, again, just really feeling for everyone out there who's who's been affected by this, which has been a lot of people. I was actually driving uh, back to Cincinnati yesterday. I was about 10 hours on the road. And um, when my girlfriend was driving, I was actually looking up some information about you and some questions I wanted to ask. And I, one of the first things that I actually saw was, you know, your entire coaching career has been in one state, South Carolina. Yeah. I just thought of how rare that is that you could stay in your home, home state, you know, so far your entire career. Yeah, it is. It is a. It is something that that I know is is pretty unique, uh, just in terms of my walk in coaching. And um, you know, I'm from South Carolina. I was born here. Uh, my whole family's from here. Mom and dad are both from here. Uh, grew up here. Played college baseball here at the College of Charleston. Um, and um, you know, was fortunate enough to get drafted out of the College of Charleston. Played a little bit of professional baseball with the Cardinals and the Rangers and the minor leagues and. You know, once I uh, realized that at, at 23 that I wasn't going to get out of A-ball uh, and they didn't resign me, it's not like I quit playing. They told me you're no longer, <laughs> you're no longer going to be able to play. I, I knew that coaching was always what I wanted to do. I mean, that, there was no doubt in my mind from, from 15 years old. I remember my high school coach asking me, you know, what do you want to do one day? You know, when you when you when you get done playing, and, and I told him I want to be a, a high school baseball coach. That's that's just always what I wanted to do. So I went into education. I majored in education at the College of Charleston with the mindset that I was going to coach when my playing career was over. And and fortunately, got a chance to play professionally and and gained a lot of experience there and, and learned from a lot of really good coaches in professional baseball. Um, and actually started out teaching and coaching. I, I taught. Uh, my first uh, four years uh, post-playing, um, I, I taught uh, middle school and elementary school uh, and coached uh, at Spartanburg Methodist Junior College. That was my first job, and, and they're a junior college power. Got a chance to work with uh, a Hall of Fame coach there in Tim Wallace. Uh, he's still there. He's a great mentor of mine. I, I learned an awful lot about the game from Tim. Uh, coached there for two years. Actually went to the junior college World series with them there, and had a fantastic experience there. And then Coach Ray Tanner, 
you know, again, a Hall of Famer, uh, gave me an opportunity to be the, the hitting coach, uh, outfield coach, base running coach at the University of South Carolina in the, oh, geez, summer of 2002. Uh, so went to work for Ray. I was his volunteer assistant there for a number of years. And then when Jim Tolman, who's now the head coach at Middle Tennessee State, um, he, he got the job at Liberty. Coach Tanner uh, promoted me from volunteer assistant uh, to recruiting coordinator. Uh, so gained uh, just a great experience working for Ray. Uh, we went to the College World Series uh, twice uh, while I was there with him. And um, and was there for six years. And then my alma mater, the College of Charleston, gave me an opportunity to be the head coach in the summer of, of 08 at the uh at the ripe age of 31 so (laughs) so i got a chance to be uh got got a chance to be the head coach at the college of charleston that was a dream come true it it really was uh for seven years uh, was the head coach there Uh, we had some great teams there and uh and then uh in the summer of 2000 let's see 15 um, I got an opportunity to be the head coach at Clemson and I have been here now for five years. So, um, so overall it's just been, um, it's just been a, a whirlwind, uh, for me, it, it, it's gone by extremely fast, but I've been very, very blessed to be able to coach in our state at, um, at four different programs, four great programs. Um, and I, I think part of it, uh, as to why I've been able to stay in state, uh, during this time period is I've always made it a huge, huge priority uh, to recruit in-state kids. I think that's that's one of the things that has helped me stay in the state of South Carolina was uh, my relationships uh, with coaches across our state. You know, one of the good things about climbing that ladder as as a young coach and being a volunteer for the number of years that I was a volunteer is I ran to camps. And I got to develop those relationships with high school coaches by hiring them to come work our camps, working with the travel ball coaches when they would come and play in tournaments at our fields. And I just, I was able to create a really strong network in state as a young coach. And that helped me when it came to getting the job at the College of Charleston and then getting the job at Clemson was just my connections throughout the state. And it's always been a priority of mine to recruit from within first and we've had great players from across the nation but we've always tried to make our base the in-state kids and recruiting i really have i i love the state of south carolina i have a lot of pride in being from here and and uh and just being able to coach in our our great state for so many years because we've got great baseball here i mean you talk about great college baseball clemson south carolina Coastal Carolina, College of Charleston, Spartanburg Methodist, Winthrop, uh, Lander, North Greenville is a Division II power. Uh, there's just a lot of good, co- a lot of good college baseball here, and great high school baseball as well. So uh, it's been a, uh, it's I've been very um, what I'm doing for as long as I've been able to doing it right here in our state. That's a that's a really unique journey. I mean, I couldn't even imagine going from teaching middle school to work, you know, being a coach at South Carolina to the next year being a recruiting coordinator. Um, that that's pretty that's pretty neat stuff. Actually, one of the questions I had just listening to you there is, how did you like that transition from being a volunteer, where you're kind of just you're running the camps, you're doing all that, plus being a hitting coach, to being the recruiting coordinator, and, and I imagine just having to be gone all the time. Yeah, that was a huge adjustment, and and, and I'll I'll say this: um, it, 
it's it's like anything else. If you if if you want to be if you want to be successful at something, you have to be willing to listen and watch from the best. And, and as simple as that sounds, I think sometimes uh, you know we 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 lose we we lose that um, sometimes with uh, when we're young. It's you know sometimes. I even know that you know, I even know this just from my own experience. You know, some when I remember when I became a head coach, and I'll, I'll get back to kind of how I answered this for you. But I can remember being a head coach at 31 and thinking, when I'm in these situations as a coach, um, you know, I, I'll do it this way. This this will be the way that I'll teach this, and this will be the way that I teach that. You know, having been an assistant for eight years prior to becoming a head coach, I felt like, you know, when I become a head coach, this is how I will do it. And you get in those situations, you start to realize just how much you appreciated working for great coaches like (laughs) Tim Wallace and Ray Tanner. You start to realize just how good they, they really are at what they do. So it gives you a different perspective. You know, you, you think when you're young that you've got it you've got it all figured out and you know so much and sometimes the the older, traditional, wiser way of doing it, the conservative way of doing it is maybe not the best way to do it and, and my way will be better. That's not always true. You start to really appreciate the wisdom and the experience of those that you've worked for and, and that was a very powerful lesson for me as a young head coach is I started to realize, man, there's a lot of things that I do not know how to do. Um, So you start to lean on those who have that experience. And I don't think you can replace that. I think that experience is a very powerful thing. Um, And when it came to recruiting, I got an opportunity to work under Jim Tolman who was Coach Tanner's recruiting coordinator. And I got a chance to go in his office every day, became the recruiting coordinator. And that was that was sort of my apprenticeship, is I would help Jim when it came to organizing the folders and the recruiting board. And I would sit in there and listen to him talk to recruits. And every time we had a kid on a visit, I would tour the I would tour with him and 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 experience that with him. And I just I just I learned from the best. Is is just Literally, again, just just watching and learning from people who were much more experienced at it than I was, and better at it than I was. And 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 when I got the opportunity to recruit, I literally just kind of followed his footprint and 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 tried to emulate him and do things the way he did it. Um, I got a chance to work with Mark Calvey. You know, I was under Mark Calvey. He was the pitching coach at the time. He was an outstanding recruiter. Uh, so I just got a chance to work, uh, with the best, you know, Ray Tanner, no, nobody did a, a, a visit on campus and in the office better than, than coach Tanner. So I think that's a critical part of coaching is, you know, in this day and age where we have so much technology, so much information, you know, so much at our disposal that we can, that we can look at on our own. Uh, nothing will replace the experience and the wisdom of of older coaches who have been there and done it. And I think we need to make sure that we remain humble as young coaches and be willing to keep our mouth shut and listen and learn from others because, uh, you know, it'll certainly bode you well as a young coach by doing that. And that's what I tried to do. 
That's great advice right there, you know, for all the young coaches out there, including myself, uh, you know, find, you know, a mentor, multiple mentors, just people you look up to. And I've already tried to do, uh, started trying to do a lot of that actually lately, um, even just in spring training. And it's, it's really helped a lot just because like you said, there's so many things out there that you don't know because you've literally just haven't been on this earth long enough to really experience it yet. Exactly. And, and I think that's important. I think, you know, people ask, you know, sometimes we at, at Clemson, because we do use a lot of technology and, and we do use a lot, a, a decent amount of data, you know, sometimes we get labeled, you guys are a, a very data driven program. And, and what I tell people all the time is, listen, I'm, I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner and, and, and I'm always looking for a better way. I think that I think one of the the most critical things that coaches today, educators today, people in a position of leadership can do is always look at the way you do things and say, okay, is there a better way to do it? To continue to learn and grow and develop as a coach and and not feel like, you know, this is the way to do this. Uh, So. Um, so I think that there are, there are a lot of older traditional models that really work when it comes to coaching baseball. And, and I think there's a lot that can be gained from using data and technology. I think the key is blending both and understanding that, you know, we have to make this as simple as possible. Um, and, um, you know, I, I do think there is a place for old school, uh, and new school. And, and I think just the more well-rounded you are, the better. And, you know, sometimes, um, you know, sometimes we think in coaching that you can take this book or this video or this piece of technology and, and this is all I have to do to be a great hitting coach or, or a great pitching coach. And that's not necessarily the case. You know, n- nobody's going to give you a, a book and tell you this is the book on coaching. Just read this and you'll be a great coach. You got to get in age and work with a player. You know, you got to get in the bullpen and work with that player and develop that relationship. Nothing's ever going to replace communication and the relationship with a player. And uh, if you can learn from those who are great at that, that is a great starting point, um, you know, in my opinion, for coaching. That's great stuff right there. Um, going off of the, the technology realm, mm-hmm. are there certain players in your program who maybe if they're overthinkers or they just they can't they can't perform well at all because if you give them some numbers and they're going to be up there thinking about all the numbers and everything like that. Do you have any of those guys? And are those guys are those the type of guys that you just you really don't tell them much of anything? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. No, we 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 have we have a wide range of guys uh when it comes to how much information we give them and you and and we all you also i think the key when it comes to information uh and and numbers and you know what a bat sensor tells you as far as your pre-contact data what what rap soto tells you on your post-contact data uh or track man or k vest or you know information I think that I think the critical part is taking that information, communicating that information with the player, and then determine what seems to work for that player. Um, I, that that part is is critical, um, it, and we have guys that that literally uh, we will tell them, "Hey, look when when your when your metrics are are really good in terms of your attack angle, uh, you know the the distance in the zone that your bat." is in when you do this particular drill, 
your numbers are really good. Well, the player at that point, he doesn't necessarily want to know what his numbers are. He just wants to do the drill. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and then we have guys that literally every swing they take will be looking at it. Hey, look, was my attack angle good there? Was my bat speed you know, good there? Was my acceleration number good there? You know, we have guys that are that, are that much in depth with it. You know, we, we have guys that, you know, they simply want to look at Rapsodo. You know, what's my exit velocity there? You know, every time I do this drill, you know, it seems like, uh, or, or that cue, you know, whatever that cue may be, it seems like my exit velocity numbers are higher. Um, and we have some guys that literally, you know, don't, don't want to look at it at all. You know, they just feel like, look, you know, my thing is, is I just try to hit the ball at the top bar of the L screen. And, and that's the only thing that I really need to focus on to make me successful. Um, I think that's, that's the, the key component. Um, I think one of the missing things sometimes that, that we forget as coaches too, when it comes to data and when it comes to technology, is we need to make sure that we're using data and technology to measure the fatigue and the strength level of the player. That is one of the most critical components that I think that we use uh, the bat sensor uh, for pre-contact data and uh, Rapsodo for the post-contact data is we want to, we want to measure our guys on weekly basis during the season to see if they're staying strong. Mm. Uh, are um, you know, are you, are you doing too much? Uh, so we test our guys on a weekly basis from a fatigue and strength standpoint as well. And, and that information during the season is, is critical for us. So there's a lot of components to it. I think it's fatigue and strength. I think there's certain guys that want to look at it a ton and it seems to help them. There's some guys that don't want to look at it at all. I think you as a coach have to take that information, give it to them, but then start to determine what works for this player individually. Yeah, that's great stuff. And that's, it's awesome to hear you, you talk about how you want to continue to learn and grow. Um, and you know, you don't, you know, you, even you, even being the head coach at Clemson, you know, you don't have all the answers and you're, you're open-minded. And I think that's awesome stuff. Um, kind of going now into like talking about like how to like build your actual team. So like do you guys, I know some teams do like culture building or team bonding or anything like that. Do you guys do anything like that to kind of help you know your guys like grow together? We do. Yes, we do. Um, we do a number of different things, and I think it's more about the journey. You know, I think I think culture. You know, culture is a, a is a big word right now, and and how to build a culture. And I, I think that I think the culture is built from within. I think it's built with the leaders on your team. Um, I think when you look at if I were to go into a program and say, do they have a good culture or, or not? I think when, when I when I think of culture, I think it's a player, a player led program. Um, I think they, I think the head coach uh, kind of establishes, again, the expectations. And, um, you know, this is how we do things. This is how we practice. This is how we train. You know, this is these are these are the things that are important to us. And the leaders on this team are going to help reinforce that. I think the great teams, uh, the players police the team. You know, the players are the ones that are going to tell the freshmen and the young guys, hey, an hour before practice, hey, we're going to the cages. You guys need to come with us. 
And, and this is what we do when we go to the cage. Uh, and when we go to the weight room, guys, this is how we train. You know, so you, you need to make sure that, that you're doing all the right things. And academically, you know, this is how we do things academically here. We, we go to class on time. We make sure we get our study hall in and our tutoring. And, you know, this is how we act off campus. Uh, we, can't, we break it down into four areas. It's academics, athletics, it's community. Uh, as a citizen, and it's the weight room. Those are our four key areas where, you know, w- we want to have a strong culture, and a lot of that is driven again by the leadership on your team. So, uh, we we always we have a leadership council on our team that's voted on by the players, and and uh, we put we split our team up underneath uh, each member of the leadership council. So, uh, the six guys that we had on our leadership council this year. You know, they will have five to six guys underneath them, and and it's kind of their peer mentoring groups, uh, and they, they kind of keep those guys in line and communicate with those guys sort of, you know, the expectations of the program and try to help those guys along. And, and But that, to me, is a big part of it. I think an, another thing that we do that's awesome uh, is we take our guys to a place called uh, – big league camp at the beginning of the fall actually our first weekend of fall team practices at big league camp and it's up in the mountains of north carolina it's, they've got a turf baseball field there and they and they have a lot of team building challenges uh, so for three days uh, we go through a series of team building that they work together on and then we also get our team practice in and and play our inner squads up there and they stay in cabins and it is like bare bones now. I mean, it's 12 guys per cabin and, um, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, they've got like a, like a, a one, uh, you know, they've got like a community shower and it's a really nice facility. Um, but it puts our guys through some, you know, some pretty tough mental and physical challenges so that they can work together, compete together and grow together. And, you know, sort of the consensus out of that, we've now done it for, this was our third year, second year. Uh, doing it, you know, the guy say, you know, if I would have, have known some of my teammates as well after the first weekend of team practice, had we not done it. So, wow. you know, again, any anything you can do to build relationships within your team is going to strengthen your team. So, you know, leadership is critical. Uh, team bonding is critical. Chemistry is critical. Uh, but I think, too, as coaches, sometimes we establish the expectations and and the things that are important to us, and, 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 and we recognize who the leaders on our team are, we have to allow them to lead. And uh, if you do that, you're, you're typically going to have a very strong culture. That's pretty cool. I never actually uh, even would have thought of doing something like that, I'd taken the entire team just you know, completely off campus. I, I, I really like that idea. On the flip side, I'm wondering, you know, if a player gets in trouble – you know, I've seen I've seen kind of both scenarios where like, you know, the, the team has to run because of the player who got in trouble and that player who got in trouble has to sit on the sidelines and watch the entire team run. I've seen it where the the entire team, just everyone with the player who got in trouble, like has to run like, together. How do you manage like if a player gets in trouble, um, how do you manage that? Well, it's a good question. I, I, there, we have uh, certain things that we do when a player breaks a team rule. Um, I'm not a big believer in, you know, if a player in my program were to get in trouble, 
I certainly am not going to make the whole team. That, that would that would not. And again, not to say not to say that any form of punishment from a coach or a philosophy on how to handle that is right or wrong. That just that wouldn't be what I would do. Things that that we do uh, with our guys if they break a team rule. Uh, but one one thing that I do um, is we take we 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 would we take baseball away from them. Um, you know, if if I have a player that that doesn't go to class or misses class, uh, I think a big part of punishment for a player is accountability. I, I don't I don't think you if a player is not accountable and doesn't recognize that they've made a mistake, I don't think you can change that behavior. A player that is a repeat offender, whether it's not going to class or you know whatever the case may be. If you just punish them without holding them accountable, or at least they recognize that what they're doing is wrong, I don't think you're going to get anywhere. So what we do um, is, if I have a player that is, that's not going to class or something of that nature, and I find out about it, we just take baseball away from them. Uh, and if you take baseball away from them, you know, oftentimes that's going to be enough for them to curb their behavior because they start to realize that they are now behind. Um, but, um, and if it's, and if it happens over and over, uh, then, you know, there have been times where that player will no longer be a part of the program. Um, I'm a big believer that, you know, you have to behave academically the same way you do, uh, athletically. Uh, you would never just skip practice. Uh, you, you would never show up late for practice. I've never had a player do that. Uh, but we have had players show up late for class or, or miss class. Um, and if they're not accountable for it, if I don't hear from them before I hear from our advisor that they missed class, then they know they're going to be in trouble when they get to the field. Uh, so I think it's, I think it's also case by case. You know, I think there's times where as coaches, you, you can't necessarily have a blanket punishment for, for this situation, you have to look at the individual. Look, I've had four of students that have missed class and literally called me and say, Skip, I freaking overslept. I set my alarm for 7 p.m. instead of 7 a.m. and just completely missed. And I may tell that player, hey, look, just don't let it happen again. You know, but if it's a guy that is just a repeat offender, you know, over and over, then that's a much, you know, different scenario. So I think it's typically a case by case basis, but but we do. We are pretty strict with our guys when it comes to going to class. I'm I'm a big believer in that. More more times than not, student athletes get in trouble for missing class, or things that happen after midnight and involve alcohol. Uh, those are those are two biggest culprits in college athletics for guys that get in trouble. And uh, if we can curb those behaviors, uh, then then we need to do so. And uh, but oftentimes it's more of an individual punishment where we take baseball away from them as opposed to a full team. The only time I've ever punished the whole team uh, for something that that uh, went against our team rules was um, how clean the locker room is. Mm. Uh, if we start to find that the locker room is dirty or the player lounge is dirty, we have a beautiful facility. We have a $10 million player facility at Clemson. If I start to see that it's dirty, that guys are leaving cups out or not throwing their trash away or wiping down the, the counters or – uh, if they're making a mess or the locker room is a mess, and, and if I warn them one time and I go back in there and it's still a mess, then that's where we, we're going to punish the whole team. And, and we've taken away the player facility 
uh, opportunity from the guys change and go out on the field and they can't use the player lounge. Uh, so, um, you know, those are things that we'll address with the whole team, but more than anything, it's an individual case by case basis. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely like that approach a lot better than just punishing everyone for one person's mistake. Um, you know, earlier we talked about the technology and, you know, just you guys using technology. I'm curious about like the mental game. Like, do you guys spend any time working on the mental game or do you give guys advice on how to handle themselves just mentally? Because the game is just, it's so mental. It really is. Well, this is a, this is another huge priority for our program. So we have our own sports psychologist that works on our staff, uh, Corey Schaefer, uh, is unbelievable uh, and has worked with my program ever since I've been at Clemson. We have a weekly meeting uh, with our guys, and it's every Wednesday, 30 minutes before stretch, where we where we do uh, Corey with our whole team on the second floor. We have a classroom, and we have a mental game meeting every week of the fall and every week of the spring. So it's a consistent meeting all year long. What we do, and, and, and this is, again, it's been a developing thing over the years, what we do that we feel like is it works really good for our guys is we teach them the mental game in the fall. So we teach them how to slow the game down. We teach them how to breathe. We teach them you know, how to have a good process. Um, we teach them the mental game and how to apply the mental game um, during the fall in our inner squads and in our practices. And in the spring, we incorporate a book. Uh, so every year we change the book and, and it'll be more of a team building concept book. Uh, last year we did legacy legacy, phenomenal book. Uh, this year, unfortunately, uh, with our season being cut short, but we were about halfway through, uh, stillness is the key. And, um, and which has paid dividends, huge dividends for our guys. So uh, that's kind of what we do. We we teach them the mental game in the fall. Corey will come out to practice, uh, and we will have uh, practices designed that day to incorporate the mental game, where we may have like a mental game, uh, like a process cage, where guys will, will hit a ball, step out, uh, you know, repeat their process, breathe, uh, step back in the box and hit. If they take a bad swing or uh, swing in a bad pitch, you know they have to they have to practice their release. Whether it's uh, readjusting their batting gloves or kicking the dirt off their shoes or whatever the case may be, um, we we actually will have a station for that. We'll actually do it with batting practice out on the field, uh, where they'll walk through at bats off of a plate. We'll set a plate up outside of the batting uh, turtle on the field, and guys while they're waiting to hit you know, can, can, can walk their way through and at bat, uh, using their process, uh, as far as stepping out and breathing and, uh, and, and, and releasing a bad pitch, you know, what is your release? You have to have a release. Uh, and, um, you know, that's kind of the way we address it is we put the mental game into practice. It's, it's one thing to talk about it again. I think that's a big part, a big deal for me is, there's a lot of really good books out there on the mental game, and you can read those books, and, and they're great. But if you don't practice it, it's not going to matter. Uh, you, you, you have to experience it. It's the same way with any sort of technology uh, or, 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 or coaching item. You know, you have to actually put it into play. So uh, Corey will come out and help our guys. We'll watch our inner squads. He'll film guys in there at bats and show them, 
Look how fast you're speeding through your bats. That's one of the things we see a lot with freshmen is how fast a freshman will have an at-bat. They'll step in the box, take a pitch, swing at a pitch, step out, step back in. You look at a veteran, a veteran will step out, he'll take a deep breath, uh, he'll relax, and he'll step back in the box. And he'll slow. He'll really practice slowing the game down. That takes time. It takes time to slow the game down and teach guys how to slow the game down with their breathing uh, and with their process. So uh, we practice it all year long, and it is a huge, huge part of our program. We actually write on our whiteboard a lot of just small uh, mental game notes for the guys to see before they actually go on deck and start to work on their timing. That's a great, great point about how fast that bat goes. I, I never thought of that, but I'm going to start looking for that more. That's a great point. Yeah, and it's something that you don't it, – it, it's funny. It'll jump out at you. It will literally jump out at you if you're not watching for it. And, and I'm guilty of it as well. We literally will get into a game, and we're just watching pitch by pitch, uh, play by play, and you, and you don't really start to realize it until somebody points it out, like a Corey, where, hey, look, he is rushing through his at-bats. He's not stepping out. He's not breathing. Uh, you know, we, we tell our guys, you know, we want the pitchers to work fast. We want the hitters to work slow. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, it, because there's nothing harder to do in the game than hit. And if you got a pitcher that works fast and he sets the tempo of the game, that makes it really difficult on the hitter. And that's 100 years. You get a pitcher that's pounding the strike zone and working fast, he's in, the, he's in control of the tempo and the pace of play. That makes it really hard on the hitter. It's the hitter's job to slow the game down. It's the pitcher's job to speed the game up. And and that's and I'm a I believe in that. Um, and you know the hit our hitters are told, hey, look, when the umpire, we want the umpire to tell you get in the box. We want we want the umpire to say, hey, you, you know, get in the box. Like we want our guys to slow the game down to the point to where it frustrates the pitcher. If you got a pitcher out there who's on go and he he wants to throw a pitch every twelve, you know, ten to twelve seconds. We need to slow him down. Slow him down. You get in control of the tempo of the at-bat. You dictate the tempo of the game, not the pitcher. And I think that's one of the battles that oftentimes we don't talk enough about in the game of baseball is, you know, the pitcher versus the hitter in terms of who dictates the pace of play. If you got a hitter that slows the game down, um, he's going to frustrate a pitcher. And it's the same thing on the pitching side. We want the exact opposite on the pitching side. Throw a pitch. Walk backwards, back up the mound, get the ball, get your sign, throw another pitch. And um, believe in it. We really try to push on our guys. Uh, and, and, and one way to do it, again, is just film them. Just film your – show your hitters. We, we, we actually put it up on the board and show our guys on our Wednesday meetings. Corey will show what, what an at-bat looks like where you have a really good process where you're slowing the game down. And um, it helps our guys tremendously. Yeah, that's very cool. That's a good way of, of kind of looking at it and kind of implementing it as well. Um, I'm, I, one of the things that came to me when, when you were saying or talking about that is, um, you know, coaching or working with infielders. And I take this with a grain of salt because I've, I've never been an infielder. I've never coached infielders or anything. But in this kind of like era now where like we want to, everything's game speed, game speed, speed it up. If the players never really have time to work on slowing it, slowing the game down in practice because everything is so game speed, then like in the game, how do they slow it down there? If that makes sense. 
Yeah, I'll give you a great, uh, and again, just being a lifelong learner, um, I'll give you something that, that I look for and that you can look for uh, when, you're, when you're at an affiliate is watch batting practice. You know, when you talk about wanting to practice slowing the game down, Okay, and really, and this this thing is this thing is real simple. We we want our guys to compete every pitch, right? I mean, at the end of the day, what are you looking for? I got one sign. We've got two signs in our in our building. One says "compete every pitch." The other one says "be great where your feet are." That's it. That's all I want. That's my like. People say, "What are your expectations for your players?" I don't talk about championships. I don't talk about winning games or winning the or, or winning the conference. I just want my guys to compete every pitch, and I want you to be great where your feet are. But we have to practice that. Well, how do you do that? Okay. Well, let's talk about um, working on it with infielders uh, because I think infielders and outfielders have to work together in tandem during batting practice. So when I'm sitting on the batting turtle, one of the things that I look for is we, we put a high emphasis on playing the ball off the bat. So if the ball is hit, our rule is if you can catch it in the air as an outfielder, or if the ball's in front of you on the ground, you got to play it at game speed. Okay. If a ball smoked in a gap, don't go after it. But if you can catch a fly ball, a line drive, a, a hard hit, base hit, a ground ball, uh, same thing on the infield. If I can catch it on the ground, I got to play it. Okay. So one thing that I look for to see if guys are competing every pitch in batting practice is are they on time to the BP pitcher? Um, are they are they taking their their you know their their steps in? in their in their hop as an infield on time is the outfielder creeping in and is he set into in an athletic position on time i look for that just as much as i do is the hitter starting his load his gather his trigger whatever you want to call it is he starting it when the when the bp pitcher is breaking his hands so we look for the timing of the hitter we look for the timing of the defenders and are they working together? I know if you're competing every pitch because I can see it in your timing. Um, so that's one of the things we do. Another thing we do, too, you know, as far as being great where your feet are, if we're running the bases during BP, are you, are you taking your secondary on time and doing it correctly? You know, sometimes we neglect base running, but we, you better run the bases at game speed when we work on it during batting practice or during practice. So we look for those things, the timing of the, de- of the defender, watch your guys. And I, and I was at, we actually were talking to Clint hurdle about this. He was our banquet uh, speaker for our baseball banquet. He said, one of the things, and this is so freaking smart. You talk about experience and wisdom. This guy's loaded with it. You know, he said, one of the things I look for with great teams is on defense Say, say you throw 150 pitches in a game. That's kind of the average number of pitches thrown roughly in a nine-inning game on one side. How many times out of those 150 pitches is everybody on defense on time? That's how you know if your guys are engaged on every single pitch. So you talk about timing and slowing the game down. You can really see if your guys are slowing the game down just based on their timing uh, during batting practice, and then their timing during defensive drills. Just if you watch those things, you can see who's engaged and really applying the things that you want them to apply to be ready to catch the baseball, to be ready to hit the baseball, 
run the bases and throw the baseball. I like that. That's that's something uh get someone definitely to start charting that a little bit and how many times are they on time uh during the game. Yep. That's a that's a great point. Um kind of going more into like the actual practice design. What uh what do you what's a typical practice look like at Clemson? Who um I, I do believe I, I I'm a firm believer too. Again, I start simple and then we build the complexity of it uh from the simplicity of it. I, I think everything starts from the mound. Uh, so, you know, anytime, uh, let's say we're working on, on defense, uh, we're a big believer when it comes to ground ball work. Uh, we, we'll do a double side toss drill a ton where, well, I'll put a, one of our coaches will sit in a chair right in front of home plate, you know, kind of where the grass meets the dirt on the infield circle. And I'll have a hitter. I'll be in the right-handed hitters box and we'll have a left-handed hitter uh, one of our coaches hits left-handed. He'll be in the left-handed hitter's box, and he'll side toss to our infielders daily uh, from that set. Uh, number one, I don't want a ground ball hit to my infielders that doesn't have topspin on it. Uh, so this the side toss drill with a fungo, and you can use a regular bat, it creates topspin on the ball. Uh, so that's, that's one thing we always wanted to be at game complexity and at game speed, uh, and, and everything coming from the mound direction. Uh, so it, this side toss drill allows our infielders too to have some timing. They can see when the, when the coach is dropping his hand to flip the ball, they can work on, uh, so they're ready when the ball is hit. Uh, so that's one thing that we do. We will, we will, uh, expand on that drill. We'll do side toss usually for 10 to 15 minutes. Sometimes I will have our outfielders and our catchers will put an L screen out in front of the plate. I will throw BP or one of our coaches will throw BP to them and they will hit hard ground balls to the infielders for an additional 15 minutes. And we will do a certain amount of plays where they throw to first base and a certain amount of plays where they turn double plays strictly off of the batted ball. And we'll create situations with our hitters when they do that. When the outfielders and catchers hit them, we'll say, okay, hey, right-handed hitters, I want you guys working on corners in and just hitting hard ground balls in the middle of the field. Or runner at second base, nobody out, we're going to move this runner. And we'll do it with left-handed hitters, move the runner. Uh, we'll, we'll make it fun where we'll go around the world. I'll have a hitter, you know, when the hitter steps in, hey, I want you to hit a ground ball to every, every, every spot. Um, so it creates a little bit of barrel awareness for our guys. We don't do it more than about 15 minutes because I'll be honest with you, I don't like practicing hitting ground balls, you know, with our guys. We want to hit line drives. So I, I'm not a big believer in doing a lot of ground ball batting practice, but we do it more as a defensive drill and a barrel awareness drill. But that's an infield defensive set for us is we'll do side toss. Um, sometimes we'll even go fungos to side toss to live defense. We call it live defense drill. Um, so we feel like when our, when our infielders are done with their defensive work, they've gotten a lot of game speed, game complexity, ground ball work. Uh, with our outfielders, uh, we like to use the hack attacks. We'll do a lot of hack attack work as far as fly balls. Um, and ground balls off the hack attack. Again, just game speed reps. Um, with our catchers, same thing. You know, outside of catching bullpens, we do a lot of work off of the pitching machines, off of a hack attack, leaving and blocking. We do a lot of randomized drills with our catchers because I think the game is random. Catching is random. 
Uh, when we work on blocking, we'll put it on a breaking ball, uh, and they'll either catch a breaking ball or block a breaking ball. We don't tell them which one it's going to be, and we just adjust the height of the machine, and they're technically catching a breaking ball until it goes into the dirt. That's how we work on blocking, because I think if you tell a guy he's blocking, you know, then it's a much different situation than what they're going to see in the game. Uh, so just in a nutshell, defensively, that's what that's what we do. Uh, we do a throwing basis from the outfield to the infield and around the horn just to work on catching and throwing in our environment. Uh, one of my favorite drills we do uh, is with our infielders, we don't just throw in the outfield. You're talking about infield play. How many times does an infielder throw the ball from right field to the foul line in a game? Never. So we will play catch up to three to four minutes in the outfield, and our infielders will take a bucket of baseballs in the infield with them. Each bucket's got 10 balls, and from their positions, they'll throw to second base, they'll throw to first base, and they'll throw home uh, within their throwing program. And then when it comes to long toss, they take their buckets into the outfield just like they would a sure double, and we'll have guys on the field line, guys in left center and right center and down the right field line, and they'll throw the balls to third base and to the plate for their long toss. That's how we throw as opposed to just throwing in the outfield. Uh, so, again, with throwing and defense, everything is as game-like as possible. Um, on the hitting side, uh, we hit off machines. I like variability with our hitters. Uh, so we use, uh, you know, use the hack attacks a good bit. Uh, we do one of my favorite drills with our hitters is we'll have one hack attack on extension legs and one on regular legs. Uh, and they'll sit the extension leg, uh, machine will be directly behind the machine that's on the regular height legs. One will be fastball and breaking ball. Uh, so we'll do double hack attack BP, uh, in the cages and on the field from time to time. Uh, on game days, we actually will take the TrackMan data of the guy that we're going to face that day, and we'll plug them into the machines. So we'll literally see that pitcher's fastball at his extension rate um, with his velocity and with the spin of his breaking ball. We'll have just the double hack attack drill, again, where one's a fastball and one's a breaking ball, and we take batting practice. That's our mixed BP. We literally do it off the hack attacks. Uh, so we Angle BP, I'm a huge believer in angle BP. We have one of our cages as a square cage. We'll have two junior hack attacks set at an angle, and we do a lot of onset and offset BP. Offset being angle, onset being the front hip angle. Um, and we have guys that actually like the onset more. You know, the front hip angle is more challenging uh, for our hitters. Uh, so we do a lot of onset offset work, a lot of double hack attack work. Um, and, um, you know, that's kind of our base. Uh, we do long bat, short bat a lot. I'm a big believer in that. We hit with the 40 forties. Uh, we have a bat company that we get uh, 40 ounce, uh, 40 inch bats from, and we work on pulling the baseball with the 40, 40, and we've got a 30, 30 model bat, um, that we work on hitting the ball the other way with and letting the ball travel more to stay connected and, and working on posture adjustments. So we'll do long bat, short bat. We'll do onset, offset. We'll do double hack attack. Um, from time to time, we'll do three plate 
uh, drills to work on timing adjustments, um, along with just pure BP. You know, we, we do a lot of BP on the field. One of the biggest adjustments we made and it's paid dividends for our guys is on the field. Our BP is now at 25 feet every day. Uh, that has cleaned up timing, I would say, faster than anything. You start taking BP at 25 feet, boys better be on time if they're going to get to it. Uh, we pushed the turtle way up on the hitter to put the bar of the turtle as far out as possible. And if they're not on time, they're going to hit the ball on the top of that, of that cage. Uh, so uh, the constraint of just having the turtle pushed up on them, the constraint of having the BP at 25 feet has helped us tremendously with timing issues and really working on staying in the middle of the field, you know, with our on the field BP and it's cleaned up our swings tremendously. So that's like a, you know, a short version of what we do practice-wise. We run the bases on a regular basis. We typically run the bases in season, I would say, three times a week on the field with our batting practice. Uh, but, uh, you know, everything is at game speed. Uh, we measure it a lot. You know, we run Rapsodo in the cage when we're hitting. We do the bat sensor work typically once a week to see if their acceleration and bat speed numbers are staying where they need to stay. Um, and, um yeah, that's 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 it in uh, in about five to eight minutes, I guess, as far as kind of what we do with our guys. But it's a challenging environment, um, and uh, you know we want our guys to continuously grow and develop as players, and uh, we feel like uh, you know what we're doing is working. No, that no, that was great stuff. That was a great rundown in a short amount of time. Now, with the weighted bats, um, are there some players that you don't want swinging weighted bats because they can get maybe like a little bit spinny or just too rotational? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And in fact, we do. Yes, um, we have some guys. One thing that we see in our our weighted bat work, there's a difference between doing an overload underload program and swinging a heavy bat. Um, I think w- when we do an overload underload. And we're, that's an off-season program where we're strictly working to develop their bat speed and increase their exit velocity. That's basically weight training for the, for the swing. That's the way we look at it. So we'll do an eight-week program over Thanksgiving and Christmas break literally just to try to develop their strength in their swing. One thing that we have found and one thing that we try to make sure that we that we monitor a lot from a swing mechanic standpoint is if you do a ton of weighted bat work and you don't break away from it or you don't mix it up, sometimes guys will over-rotate in much heavy bat work, especially if a guy is not strong enough. And again, I think that's the critical part is you have to adjust the, the, the size and the weight of the bat based on the strength of the player. So if I've got a player who's who's is very strong, he can use a forty forty. Uh, if I got a guy not real strong, we've got a thirty six thirty six model that we would use with him. Uh, we have one in between that's a thirty eight thirty eight. We may even take a guy and just literally just take a roll of tape, put it on the end of an old aluminum bat, and have him swing that if he's or hand load the bat. Uh, so again, based on the strength level of the player, you know, how heavy a bat do we want him to use? You know, another thing too, that in, in everybody, you know, again, out there is using heavy bats. If you have guys that have barrel awareness issues, um, the light bats pretty dang good for that. 
uh, you know, if uh, we have guys that literally will, um, will hit with a fungo, some in the cages, um, we've got one of our hitters, um, who swings and misses some, and I'll take a bucket and a fungo, put him in the cage with a bucket, baseballs and a fungo, and he'll throw balls up and just try to hit with a fungo line drives into the back of the cage for pure bat path and barrel awareness. Because if you can throw a ball up at home plate or in a cage and hit it to straightaway center field, um, you know, with pretty good distance uh, or hit a line drive into the back of the cage with a fungo, you got pretty good bat path and you've got pretty good barrel awareness. I mean, take a fungo bat with your players and put them at home plate, have them throw the ball up, say, hey, I want you to hit it off the batter's eye. And you'll see guys hook balls to third, hook balls into other dugout. I mean, <laughs> it's ama- it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing how many guys just bat, stabilize their scap, throw the ball up, and hit it. Um, but I guarantee you this, if you do that on a regular basis, watch what it does to their bat path. It will clean up their bat path and their barrel awareness tremendously. One of our hitters that actually um, you know, had a walk-off hit in our last game that's that's the only drill he does in the cage. He'll just throw the ball up and hit line drives in the back of the cage with a fungo. And it's an old school drill, but it is a great drill for barrel awareness and bat path. Uh, so, again, I think variety is a big deal. I think that, you know, we got, we've got guys. I got one player who um, he's very tall. Uh, he, he pulls off the ball some. You talk about being spinny and spinning off the ball. Well, we use a short bat a lot with him, and it just forces him to stay connected. And because he's so tall, he has to adjust his posture to the ball away and down, and it forces him, without really thinking about it, to adjust his posture correctly to hit the ball hard the other way. Uh, so, again, you, you have to, you've got to try a number before you start to see, okay, over time, you start to get a feel for what works for different players. And, uh, you know, that's kind of my job. My job is to give them the tools to, to use trial and error uh, over the course of the fall. And once we develop that plan and that feel for what works for the player, that's what we run with. What about uh, for younger guys, especially in your program, if they come in and maybe they don't have the best uh, plate awareness or, you know, make the best swing decisions, is there anything that you guys, like, uh, work on or drills that you guys like to work on that? Absolutely. Uh, then this is another just huge realm of importance for us. It's one thing that we do, you know, because, again, this has been like the million-dollar question for all of us on the hitting side forever is how do you teach plate – plate discipline um well and we don't think by any means that we have it figured out but this this is just what we do one thing that we started doing uh this year in particular uh we did it last year and it's built it's continued to build and evolve and we feel like we've we've gotten better at it the first thing we do is we chart their swing decisions so a good decision for us is a strike swung at and a ball taken uh, a bad decision is a strike taken and a ball swung at. Uh, so all we do is over the course of an inner squad, let's say a guy sees 20 pitches, all we do is is we just put a dot in the, in the box as far as how many strikes did he swing at, how many strikes did he take, how many balls did he swing at, how many balls did he take. 
well, the balls that he took and the strikes that he swung at were his good decisions that day. And, and literally, if he was 10 out of 20, uh, then he was 50% that day. Well, well, our, our goal is for our guys to be at 80%. Uh, so we looked at a study. There's a study out there of, of the best swing decision seasons in the big leagues, like over the last 20 years. There's an article. You can find it. Uh, and it shows you the best 20 hitters in the big leagues over the last like 20 to 25 years when it came to swing decisions. And all of those guys were at roughly 80% or better. So that's kind of the, it's a really high standard, but it's something that we shoot for. And one thing that we've noticed over, and, I, and I'll get to why swing decisions are so important. One thing that we notice is our guys that strike out the most, it's not that they take strikes because we all know as hitting coaches, not all strikes are created equal, right? I mean, if you're in a no-o count, I don't want you swinging at a strike at your right, feet right. down, right? I mean, right. so even though you may get a, a notch in the strikes taken, and that's a and that's technically a bad decision, over the course of time, you're going to see that your best hitters they simply don't swing at balls; they recognize balls. Uh, the guys that have the, the highest amount of balls swung at are the ones that are the most inconsistent. So then with those guys, we literally try to develop more of a plan as far as shrinking the zone to their damage zone. And literally just to hold it back, you're looking for a pitch in your damage zone. And that helps guys. Um, so we had 50, roughly 50 at-bats in the fall per player. 17 hitters in the fall. Okay, so you do the math on that. How many at-bats our guys had in the fall? As far as balls swung at that resulted in a hit out of roughly 850 plate appearances or whatever the math is on that, we had four hits on balls in the fall. Wow. So if that if that doesn't tell you that swinging at to be a or or swinging at strikes and laying off of balls is a big deal when it comes to coaching uh you you need to really look at what you're doing because it's really that simple uh so we try to create plans for heat maps with our guys we use rapsodo data we use trackman maps with our guys and really especially with our guys that chase more than others we try to develop you know, their heat maps, this is the zone in which you do damage. Stay in this zone and lay off the pitches out of the zone. Uh, so um, another thing we do, too, um, head coach at Notre Dame, and it's helped a lot, is we'll take a plate, all of our plates in the cage, and we do it on the field, too, and we'll measure a ball and a half off the inside corner and a ball and a half off the outside corner. And we take a piece of tape, and we, and we tape a line over the plate, that measures about 11 inches and it's basically from you know the uh the outer red line to the inner red lines about 11 inches and it's in this little corner take a take two baseballs put them on the inside corner in two baseballs on the outside corner in and then where the second baseball is just draw a line about halfway through that ball and then just put a piece of tape over the whole uh, over that line if that makes sense and literally all we do for our first two strikes is you cover that 11 inch. Uh, it can be whatever color you want it to be, blue, orange, whatever you want it to be. But we put red tape and we literally just, that's your lane that we want you to swing at uh, for the first two strikes. 
And then with two strikes, we take the inner red line and we slide it to the middle of the plate. So now we expand that plate. So we'll overlay, you know, that, that throwdown plate with home plate. And, uh, you know, that outer red line is literally, you know, just off the outside corner. And that's your 11 inches that you're trying to cover with two strikes. So we just shift the plate over a little bit. And we just practice taking batting practice uh, between those red lines. You know, we're always covering 11 inch strikes. It, it literally winds up being about four baseballs over the middle of the plate. You know, if you, if you were to cut the plate in half, two balls in, two balls out, that's roughly that 11 inches. Um, and then with two strikes, we're covering about one ball off the plate and we work in, you know, three balls off of that. And that's your four balls. If you did it with baseballs, we just, we just measured it on a throwdown plate and we take BP with that makes sense or not. But, um, that's kind of how we teach plate discipline is just staying in the middle of the plate until you get two strikes covering four baseballs over the middle of the plate, slide those baseballs, pass ball being one ball off the plate, because we all know with umpires, they will call the ball, they'll call one, sometimes two balls off the plate a strike. We don't want to leave it in the umpire's hands, and we don't want to expand too much, but we got to be able to hit at least one ball off the plate with two strikes. Um, and uh, if that means we get up on the plate a little bit, that's fine. You know, a lot of our guys will get up on the plate with two strikes just to make it more challenging for the pitcher. Um, and there's a lot of debates on that, too, you know, whether, you know, you, you want to make a big two-strike adjustment. We believe you do. Another thing we do, uh, and this really helps with some guys who are more external targets, we work off the top bar of the L screen for our first two strikes. So in BP, when we're working on hitting a baseball, just work off the top bar of the L screen. One or two-strike approach, we try to drive the baseball through the opposite side infielder. So a right-handed hitter tries to drive the ball through the second baseman. Left-handed hitter tries to drive the ball through the shortstop. Some of our guys will use the outfield as an external target. Uh, first two strikes, we're from second base to the pull side foul line. Uh, and then with two strikes, uh, it's from second base to the opposite field foul line. Uh, some guys literally will just stay gap to gap, you know, or, or top bar of the L screen have to, again, find an individual plan for guys too. you know, some guys that work better externally. There's some guys that work better by making physical adjustments, spreading out, choking up. Some guys don't make that physical adjustment at all, but we work a lot with the, with the tape on the plate, as far as just how many balls we want them to cover, um, and, uh, and chart their swing decisions. Swing decisions is a big one. If if you can get guys to lay off the pitch, pitches out of the zone, it helps. Another great saying, and I got this from he's at Kentucky. He said uh, he told me this years ago, "Up is ours, down is theirs." And I think that that's helped our hitters for years, as uh, we look for the ball up and we lay off the ball down until we get two strikes. And you know, up is ours and down is theirs. Even for guys that hit the ball down well. It's got to start up if you're going to be able to hit it. You know, your chase on is typically down on off-speed pitches. And we know now with TrackMan data that pitchers are pitching up, you know, more than ever. But we got to be able to hit the ball, you know, at the top of the strike zone, especially at your level. You know, with so many guys throwing hard and trying to pitch at the top of the zone, you got to be able to get to the ball at the top of the strike zone. So, zone and then work down, you know, from there. But, you know, up is ours and down is theirs is another 
you know, critical cue that we use a lot uh, when it comes to approach and, and discipline and timing. Uh, you know, we work a lot off the break of the pitcher's hands uh, to start our timing. That's kind of our starting point. But if we have guys that are still late, hey, when he moves, you move. That's something that I'll say a lot, especially if a guy's got a really good fastball, uh, just to help guys be on time and not rush to get to a hitting position on time uh, to be able to consistently hit the ball hard. Oh, that's that's awesome, awesome stuff. I mean, you, you explain that so well, and it's um, it's so cool how at your program you guys um, you cover everything, right? Not just not just like you said the technology, but the mental game, the plate discipline, infield, outfield. Um, it, it just feels like everything is covered. I mean, I couldn't imagine being recruited by you and and, and not wanting to <laughs> to come play for you. So this has been I've learned so much. I've I've written down so many notes just hearing you talk in this episode and um actually my boss uh matt blood um who's our director of player He's development awesome. said he said to say hi and his son henry too uh henry says hi and i know they're big fans of what you and uh your program um is doing so again just really appreciate you coming on the show today um this has been awesome having me i, I love your show i've listened to your podcast now for quite some time and um, you know, just uh, appreciate what you do for, for all of us out here in baseball who love the game and want to continue to watch the game grow. So I appreciate, uh, again, you having me on, Patrick. All right. Thanks, Monty. Appreciate it. Yep. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share it on social media. Until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>